Hey, Film Files, welcome back to the show. If you are new to our program, uh, we are basically a couple of tape heads from Chicago who every episode we like to find a movie that has left some sort of dense in uh, pop culture, both good movies and bad movies. And also, if you're new, this is a great episode to join. This is the first episode of our seventh season. So we have found a really good movie tonight, a great movie. And there's some arguments that would call this a perfect movie, which we can get to a little bit later. So to help me corral my own thoughts and to add some of his own, um, I've invited one of our regulars from Chicago. He's a filmmaker, he's a uh, producer and co-owner and operator of P3 MediaWorks, a video production house here in Chicago. Corey Gilbert, welcome. Thank you, Jimmy. Always great to be here. And this is Movie Show Theater. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What we've got here is Failure to communicate. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What do you want? All right, so obviously you know that uh, the movie we're talking about today is Heat. If you've never seen the movie, you probably did not click on the the play link. So I guess my objective for today is to convince you that it's time for a rewatch. Just a little bit of housekeeping. This movie came out in 1995. Uh, Michael Mann directed this movie. And he's one of those guys that only puts out a movie every couple of years just because of everything that he puts into it. You know, emotionally, physically, his research is just second to none. But he's done uh, Thief from 1981. He did Manhunter in 1986. He did Last of the Mohicans in 1992. He did The Insider in 99, Ali, uh, Collateral, which has a really interesting link to uh, this movie um, that we're talking about today, Heat, and Miami Vice in 2006. I want to just open the floor up to Corey, but I just, I first just wanted to mention that I, we were just talking before we started recording. I just did a rewatch uh, this week, and it's been sadly probably like eight years since I've seen this movie. And I remember when it was over, when I first watched it, remember thinking that it was like the best kind of four different movies that this can fall into. You know, it's it's a thriller. It's a cat and mouse sort of deal. It's a, it's a heist movie. It, it's not the first time you've seen this story, but it's the best version of this story that you've ever seen. And I think Michael Mann has a talent of pulling out the best performances from every actor that he works with and not just acting talent, but like, you know, technically this film is beautiful and editing this, this is a three hour long movie where you really can't cut anything out. But like with Collateral, I never really cared about Jamie Foxx, but Jamie Foxx and Collateral is fucking awesome. So I guess what is it about Heat that makes it so damn good, Corey? <laughs> well, what isn't there about Heat that makes it really damn good? The story is awesome, even though it is a story that is not necessarily so new or unique. It's a basic cops and robbers story. It's still detailed. It's complex. It has a whole host of characters all played brilliantly by all the actors. It's an ensemble cast, and the direction is incredible. 
The production value is incredible. The locations throughout the city of LA were just magnificent. It really gives you sort of this, you know, LA-esque feel and sense and tone. You get a you get a feel for the the disconnectedness of the city, you know, and just how much scope there is in that city. And I think that the film reflects that scope. And then again, the acting is incredible. The writing is incredible. The character development is incredible. So really, there isn't much to not like about this film. You know, the length is something that sometimes people have, you know, struggles with. You know, your general audience, you know, has sometimes a, a struggle past two hours. For someone like me, I don't. Uh, I think if it's if it's worth putting in the film and it's worth developing the story, it's worth adding length to the runtime. Uh, this movie, I think, is pretty close to three hours, like you mentioned a bit earlier. Um, and I have no problem with it. I think that there, there's nothing gratuitous in the film at all. Even some of the side characters that don't have lots of screen time are really compelling. Uh, Dennis Haysbert's character, to me, is one of the most interesting characters. And I think for this film being done in 1995, which is 26 years ago, just his side story is a social justice story in and of itself. He is an ex-con that's really trying to straighten himself out. And the film does a very, very good job at articulating how tough that can be in a, in a world of disenfranchisement. Um, where the where he you know the the job that he gets at the diner, this guy is totally in a racket with the parole officer to take half his paycheck every week, and threatens that if he doesn't do it, will threaten to just violate his parole, even even if he doesn't do anything to violate his parole. And I think it's you know maybe seventeen or eighteen minutes of screen time, and Michael Mann does an amazing job just telling that story probably better than I've seen it in a lot of movies that focus on those types of things. And that's just a side story in this, in this gigantic, awesome film that is going on and stories that are surrounding that. So there just isn't much to not like about this film. I think Michael Mann is one of the most more responsible American directors in the sense that he does add elements like that to a story that could have very easily just been completely more entertainment based, right? About the workaholic cop and, and then his equal nemesis, the workaholic criminal, which isn't necessarily a story or a, a subject matter that is socially aware or anything like that. But then inside of it, he has this character of Dennis Haysbert. And he really truly shows someone that was trying to get back on track and not fall back into a life of crime and just really felt and was really actually forced into a position to do so by the people that are supposed to be helping him not, which is this employer that's agreed to employ ex-cons and a parole officer whose job is to try and support someone's transition, not take advantage of it. That's a bit of a tangent, right? Overall, I think for me, my favorite part of the film is the idea that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro are essentially the same character, right? They are workaholics and they're their addiction to their job and the perfectionist nature of who they are in their job takes an effect on everything else in their personal life. It destroys their relationships with other people. In fact, to me, the story is about that some of the folks like this or people like this that have, you know, there's there's this underlying fear of relationships, like solid, substantial relationships with other people and relationships in their lives. And they make up for that by being completely immersed in their career, quote unquote, or their job, or this craft, and I think the film explores that idea pretty interestingly, and I think that's one of my favorite parts about the film, and then you wrap that around an action movie that's like excellent action, not gratuitous, but all elements of the story that are necessary. Michael Mann is 
he's a perfectionist himself. I, I get the sense that Michael Mann was, you know, reflecting on his own, maybe his own life in the two main characters and how those two main characters were kind of an amalgamation of maybe his life. <laughs> I don't know much about Michael Mann personally, but it, it seems like he, he, he certainly would has to be a perfectionist to make the type of movies and the quality of movies that he does. And so I get the idea that maybe he was writing a little bit of, of himself into those two characters, which I found cool. I think there just isn't a lot to not like about this film. And I think you mentioned earlier, is it a perfect movie? It might be close. You know, there are some of those other films out there you hear, like the Shawshank Redemption, is it? It's like flawless storytelling, right? All that ends up being subjective. Of but I, in my opinion, you know, from where I sit, I enjoy the film so much that it's per, it's flawless storytelling for me. Just go down the list of all the interesting characters in the film. Tom Sizemore's character is awesome. Val Kilmer's character is awesome. And his relationship with Ashley Judd was awesome. And then even the character of Wayne Grow, who is kind of the splinter in the side of Robert De Niro the whole time and ends up kind of being connected to his ultimate downfall is interesting in and of itself. I mean, in this whole movie of all the things that I just listed, there's also a serial killer investigation going on. And it ends up being this guy that ends up just doing a one-off job with Robert De Niro's crew. So how you weave all of that into a movie and not dilute it and it still is solid and holds up on all those different platforms is pretty amazing. Yeah, you were talking about Wayne Grow and watching it, I had forgotten that it was this whole like side story. I mean, the movie in general is so much better than what we deserved in 1995. But to think this movie came out 25 years ago and to watch it now and think, you know, how would this have translated if this movie was written today? And something that I really appreciate, you were talking about the social justice aspect. Yeah, that's today. That's We haven't unfortunately made any progress that can be filmed as is still just as valid. And even with the action, I feel like when you go and you watch, I guess this is a, a crude example, but like an Avengers movie, when the, actions, when the action set pieces start, it's like the story gets put on pause for the sake of spectacle, and that's fine. But like this movie, even in its action, continues to tell this story. We haven't gotten to the bank robbing scene, and that's like a huge, huge, obviously a huge part of it. It's like this slow boil. But there is a scene where Robert De Niro is talking to Amy Brennan and his girlfriend Edie, and they're on a terrace. And I, I didn't notice this before. And, and they're in front of like a beautiful L.A. backdrop. And you can tell that it's like just something seems kind of off. And green screen technology in 1995 was like pretty primitive. I mean, it was in its primordial stage. But the L.A. backdrop, I mean, it was out of focus. It was like a very deep focus shot, but it was very like swirly almost. And so I found out, I did some reading about it. And uh, the actors were put in front of a small green screen and the background was filmed separately. And the DP, Dante Spinotti, ran the camera at three frames per second to boost the exposure level to complement the foreground activity, which is like ultimately totally unnecessary. And I'm sure 90% of people that watch this movie maybe didn't think that much into it, but it's totally effective and it's very dreamy. And it sets the scene for this guy who is like, one of his rules is never engage in anything that you can't walk away from in 30 seconds when you see the heat coming around the corner and he fell in love and he wasn't supposed to, this is like his one rule. So this is like in the middle of getting caught up in it. 
Um, but like Corey was talking about, there's two protagonists in this movie, and it's the cop and it's the robber. And even though the Wayne Grows story is like a whole other side thing, it kind of needs to be there because Wayne Grow is, is the only antagonist in this movie. And they create such story behind every character. So when the action starts, you're like deeply invested in every character, even like three or four cops on the law enforcement side. And so when someone gets hit, I gotta remember the guy's name, but he always wore that obnoxious like tweed blazer with the shoulder pads. Uh, he gets killed pretty quick. And it kind of like hits you a little bit. You're like, oh, damn, we've been watching him the whole movie. And I don't see heist movies or action movies doing that at all, let alone in 1995, where like Bad Boys was 95. But yeah, to get an action movie like this that was rated R that had this impact and this meaning, you know, his research he sent to Nero to Folsom Prison to do research with inmates. They all went and spent four months in the desert doing firearms training. And in June of 2002, the scene involving the shootout after the bank robbery was shown to the United States Marine recruits at San Diego as an example of the proper way to retreat while under fire. And I read somewhere that different law enforcement branches have used that scene of Val Kilmer reloading his machine gun as like, if you can't do it this fast, you need to keep training. And I mean, that's just unbelievable. Michael Mann is famous for being technically on par with reality, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it. One of my fellow filmmaker friends, I'll drop a name here, Frank Tziti, another local Chicago filmmaker, is a huge Michael Mann fan. And he also uh, has been very inspired by the idea of being tactically correct and tactically realistic and authentic and um, goes a long way. And that scene was I don't know if the word revolutionary is the right word, but it was that scene has been picked apart quite a bit over the last couple of decades since that film came out for many reasons. Just the way it was filmed with all the actual audio, I believe like they tried to not add any like post audio to the gunfire and the sounds of the machine guns and how it echoes off the buildings in a city like that. Yeah, they and, had mics wired everywhere. Yeah, it is a very impactful scene from an audio standpoint. If you've ever, if you had the privilege of seeing it in the theater or if you've had the privilege of watching it, you know, just on at home with a sound that, that's, you know, at least adequate, the audio in that scene is it's the part that impacts me the most. It's so realistic. There's no music during that scene. They cut all the music and it's all like the diegetic audio and the sounds of the machine guns are pretty dramatic. And I think that's the point of that scene is that this incredible, horrific shootout happens in the middle of the day in the downtown area of a major city. And I think to keep the honesty of what that scene would be about you know, is why Michael Mann decided to do it the way he did it. And to me, it's, at least in modern cinema, it's like one of the most impactful sort of action scenes. And it just makes it real and gritty. And it makes it not gratuitous. It makes it, to your point, like in action movies where sort of the story gets on pause for this big spectacle. This isn't spectacle more than it's horrific to watch, right? And, you know, should be. And I think if you're able to look at it through those eyes, I think maybe some people look at it and go, oh, it's just a gratuitous action movie, but I, I really don't think it is. And I think Michael Mann tries to be responsible with the subject matter in that way and not make it glamorous, right? Like Val Kilmer gets shot in that one and injured in that one. He gets, he gets hit. And I think you get the idea that 
this isn't a good thing, right? And then Tom Sizemore's character is ultimately killed in that scene as well. And I think the point of that scene is to show the horror of it and not make it sort of like this glamorous, like cool to be a criminal type of scene. That's how I interpreted that scene. So... Yeah, and just the way that they set up that scene. So there's the famous diner scene where Neil and Al Pacino's character meet at a diner. Pacino pulls him over, asks him to coffee, and then we kind of see, you know, how broken these men are. But also, you know, even before that scene, it was very clear, subtly, but it was clear that we're we're supposed to understand that these are, like Corey said, the same character. They're obsessed They have ruined uh, relationships after relationships. There's this uh, side story with Pacino's third wife, Justine, and then that whole side story with little Natalie Portman, which is not, it doesn't really matter to the plot of the movie, but just paints such a deeper image so that when they actually do meet, you know, you don't walk away from that diner with any new information, more as just like reminded of how close they are. And, you know, at the very end, he's like... Uh, maybe we'll never meet again. Or maybe we'll never see each other again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brother, you are going down. Yeah. And then, like, the very next scene is them picking up dude from the diner. And then it's, like, right into the bank robbery. So the do you know about the painting that inspired one of the scenes? There's this artist named Alex Colville. And he had this painting called Pacific. And... I'm showing Corey. That inspired Mike. You know about that? Have you ever seen that before? I'd never seen the painting before, but I I know the shot. Yeah, so it's this guy with his back to the camera, and he's looking over this huge picture window of waves, and there's a gun in the foreground. And Michael Mann designed this entire scene over this painting that he was just so like moved by this isolation and loneliness and there's this gun on the table and it's just such an incredible story that you can enjoy it on a very superficial level and then the deeper that you get there's just layer after layer after layer Al Pacino's wife in the film is Diane Venora she also played Russell Crowe's wife in The Insider Oh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, recycled actors, which I always appreciate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the beginning of the movie, it opens with this beautiful shot of the subway track at dusk. And I guess that same exact shot, not the same roll of film, but that same shot is used at the very end of Collateral, which we don't have to get into that as much. But if you've seen that, it's kind of the same story of these opposing forces and these two people who at the beginning look like they couldn't be more different and at the end of the movie you realize how close they really are Mm. so that's really interesting i know this is one of chris nolan's favorite movies i guess this is the film that inspired his vision of gotham city for in the dark knight trilogy which is great and the armored truck robbery at the beginning was so much fun to revisit it's such an awesome way to introduce these characters Instead of giving you a list of facts of who these characters are, you're just showing them doing their job. And um, Val Kilmer is the only one with a black mask on. Everybody else has a white mask. I don't know if we can count that as foreshadowing. It's like he's the only one that actually makes it. I wanted to comment on that. I I love that he has the only black mask because he is the only one that technically survives from Robert De Niro's crew. But I think, in my opinion, what Michael Mann is saying is that he actually sacrificed the most. When he made it, the trade-off for him getting away free was that he could never see his family again. 
And to me, that's Michael Mann saying there are some fates worse than death. Yeah. And I think that for me, when I'm watching that scene, and it's kind of the opening scene of the film, and Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer are sitting in the ambulance together waiting, and there's the tension there of waiting, that they're waiting for the armored car, and it's on its way, and it's going to be there any minute. And the two of them are sitting there, and Robert De Niro is completely focused on the job. Val Kilmer is like messing with the radio and turning it on and off. And to me, what Michael Mann is saying with that character is he's the one that's got the most to lose because he's got this wife that he loves. You know, the sun rises and sets with her. I think he says that in the film at one point. And so to me, De Niro is sitting there completely focused on the job. And Val Kilmer is sitting there going, if I get caught, I'll never see my wife and my kid again. So these two characters have different motivations for why they do what they do. And I think that, you know, when I watch the film and I watch that shot where it's just the two of them in the ambulance, the cameras like on the outside, you know, shooting through the windshield and you see that Robert De Niro is like calm and focused and you see that Val Kilmer is like jittery. And I think it's because the two guys have different things on their mind. It's that level of character development and direction that you have to respect in a movie like this. Yeah, and even if you're not looking at it that microscopically, it's still just as enjoyable. I mean, young Danny Trejo, he's a handsome man. I mean, he's still a handsome man in his own right, but I forgot that his name in the movie was Trejo. It was wonderful. Hank Azaria. We had Ashley Judd, of course. We had... Jeremy Piven. William Fickner is Van Zandt. Bill Fickner, yeah. I remember the more I was watching this movie, the more that it started to kind of feel like The Dark Knight. I mean, you could just see the inspiration. You could see the influence. You know, the the ending, I think we probably both have a lot to say about the ending because I had kind of forgotten the way that it transpires. So if it's been a while since you've seen it, they, they do the robbery. They all split up. Robert De Niro and his girlfriend, Edie, um, he finally convinces her to stay with him. And they're going to tie up a couple loose ends. And then this is it, baby. This is the last big score. We're going to be done. And I don't think that he believes it for one second. I think that he's just like trying to convince himself. And so they're on the freeway and he gets a call from John Voight. And John Voight is basically like, yeah, that one guy that really fucked you over. He finally did check into this hotel under the name Jameson, but you're not going to go get him, right? You're going to go to the hotel because you're in the clear. You're free. And he hangs up the phone, which the car phone is, I, I miss the car phone. That was awesome. Al Pacino has one too in his car. Yeah. yeah. I th- It was just called a mobile phone, I believe. So yeah, so he hangs up the phone and he almost looks, I mean, he smiles a little bit, but he almost looks disappointed like anticlimactic and you're like oh my god is he is he actually going to survive the movie because you want him to but you also really like al pacino and you also really want him to meet his objectives for the movie and all he wants is to catch robert de niro and all robert de niro wants is to not get caught by al pacino and so you're kind of like put in this predicament and then he jerks the wheel to circle back and go and try and kill this character, Wayne Grow, which is like the only antagonist of the movie. And it's enough to make you scream at your television when he jerks the wheel to go get him because of course the police have staked out this guy's hotel room. But I don't think that he was ignorant in thinking that like, yeah, I'm just going to go get him and then we're going to get on the plane and it's going to be fine. I think that that was Robert De Niro's, I don't know. I don't think that he thought it was going to go that easy. Well, he knew it was a risk, 
But, you know, he's a master of disguise and a master at what he does. And I, I would say that Robert De Niro's character knows that the place is probably staked out, but he, his perfectionism is what made him have to go and get Wayne Grow, right? In his life as a criminal, he has a code and his craft is based on code and creed. And if someone betrays you, they're not allowed to get away with that. And if that's your job, right, if that's your career, you have to look at it in that sort of a way, right? In his opinion, by leaving and not taking care of Wangro, he was betraying his craft, right? And he's a perfectionist. So it's an obsessive compulsive thing when you're that much of a perfectionist in the craft that you do. And he's going to not be able to resist the impulse to go and get the guy, right? And, you know, he's got that moment there where he like, Edie's like, is everything okay after he hangs with the phone? And he's like, yep, home free. Right, because that's what Voigt, John Voice said. You're home free. Yeah, he yeah. like hangs up the phone. He's like, no, we're home. he's like, no, we're all good, home free. And then he sits there, and the the camera just stays on him, and he's still driving, and he gets this like weird smile on his face, and he just because he's frustrated at himself, and his perfectionism is never gonna allow him to not jerk the wheel and go take care of business. Right, that's what I see in that scene. Yeah. Um. So he goes and kills him. Rob De Niro pulls the fire alarm. It's this crazy mess. Ambulances everywhere. And Al Pacino is running through the mess of people trying to find De Niro. And he sees Edie sitting in a car by herself. And he remembers that they at the diner, De Niro said that he has a girl. It was just really beautiful the way they played it out. He just, he saw the girl scared in the car and he knew what that meant and he knew what that represented and that final confrontation as soon as pacino sees de niro running and like the final chase is on that's a long fucking chase it's great and i love it but it's crazy to think obviously there was nothing digital about that movie there was no post-production edits like they're actually they're running across a runway they're running across a tarmac you know they're filming this and there's planes that are 200 feet above their head and just like shaking the ground there was no sound stages that were used in this movie you know like Corey said they got all live audio for the bank robbery but you would never know that if you were just watching it i mean i was already a fan of, of michael mann but it gave me a lot more respect for the craft i guess and how much of himself went into this movie you know, and just seeing maybe like four or five Michael Mann movies, I can comfortably say that he's got to be a perfectionist. I mean, he's got these characters in all of his movies. Collateral was the first one that I saw, which is sad that I saw that before Heat. But yeah, even in, when they're in the bank robbery and they're still driving before Dennis bites the dust, De Niro's in the front seat with an M16 machine gun and he just starts firing forward through the windshield and i just thought that was such an absurd crazy i've never seen that before in action movies you know there's always like the really gratuitous person sticking halfway out the car out the out the window you know shooting or you know shooting while driving all of these like incredibly stylistic but unrealistic maneuvers during car chases that we've come to accept and love as these cliches and tropes and de niro just starts shooting through the the windshield. So I had to do a little bit of uh, research on that. And sure as shit, that's something that was actually done um, in a famous bank robbery that involved Eddie Bunker, which is part of the inspiration for this movie. And Michael Mann read that somewhere that one of the bank robbers shot 
through the windshield at police cars in front of him and was just like, yep, that's going in the movie. That's too good not to use. And I agree. It's too good not to use. It's very dramatic. You know, it shows that these guys, you know, they're professionals in being criminals, but they're professionals and they'll do whatever it takes to bang their way out of there, so to speak, right? Like just to blast their way out, out of the situation. And, you know, Robert De Niro's character, you know, he's not going to lean out of a window and put himself at extra risk of getting shot or, you know, hitting something like a street pole or whatever. It's an instinctual thing. You just start shooting through the windshield. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It's like the perfect blend of style over realism because, you know, some of the locations that they choose are just so visceral and, you know, believable. But I mean, you just can't believe that these are actual places in Los Angeles, like the chop shop, the diner, the armored car robbery scene at the beginning. They pop open the trunk of a car and it's got this like burlap bag that's attached to the trunk of the car, but it's designed as like a little corp catcher. So like they pop the trunk and there's this bag that covers the whole interior of the trunk and then like a a little bag that's attached to the top of the trunk. Just so perfectly planned to take care of a body. Mm -hmm. It's just like these boys thought of everything. Mm -hmm. It's not hyper violent. I mean, there's it's violent. There's there's action sequences, obviously. You know, this is a rated R movie. And the scene with Wayne Grow is pretty graphic uh, when they show the aftermath. They have a wide shot of of him after he's gotten shot and like the whole drapes are just like covered in blood. But action movies that are rated R now are just hyper violent. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with storytelling. It's just because they can. And I like it when it's done for the sake of telling the story, but it wasn't really necessary in Heat. And so it wasn't really utilized. And um Once again, that's just to Michael Mann's credit. Yeah, I would never categorize this movie as an action movie. Yeah, it's not an action movie. If you think it's an action movie, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, you're going to be disappointed. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, obviously the scene opens with this, um, the armored car heist. And then there's obviously the big bank robbery scene in the middle. And, you know, those are action scenes. But to me, they're still done so non-gratuitously and so realistically that I don't look at it as an action movie, right? Die Hard's an action movie, uh, a great one, and even still great story, great character development. Is it a Christmas movie, even, though? Sure it is. I mean, Die Hard's it takes, a Christmas movie? takes place at Christmas, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what cat I don't know if that means it's a Christmas movie. But another good film that is, another good film that's, to me, great, filmmaking and great storytelling a little more i guess fun right than heat i don't know if you're supposed to have a lot of fun watching heat you're supposed to kind of have fun watching die hard though right but still very well done and great character development right even though it's a little more over the top and a little more gratuitous in the sense that it's not a little more suspended belief of reality whereas heat you know michael mann i think he walks the line of trying to be as realistic as possible and close to reality as possible where Die Hard is obviously sort of skirts the uh, the boundaries of what would really happen if you know you were in that situation and it oversimplifies some things like the reporter going to the house and it being on the news at the right time and all that but all done intentionally and so it's fine whereas Michael Mann's intentions were to stay as close to realism as possible and i think that's why it's not an action movie 
Yeah, Die Hard's a pretty good example because that was 1988. But I don't remember a single camera shot or angle or setup from Die Hard. And it's like Corey said, you're not really supposed to. And I'm not a cinematographer by any stretch, but I can remember, I mean, if I had a piece of paper and a pen and you asked me to write down all of the impactful camera shots or, or angles or like setups that you remember from Heat, I could probably think of like 20. I mean, they're just all throughout this movie. And as a side note, I also think Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And the criteria I came up with is, can the same story take place in summertime? Like, could Die Hard take place in the summertime? I don't think it could because they had the Christmas party. That wouldn't have been happening. They couldn't have done it without the Christmas party. And uh, John McClane came. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sure. I think it's a Christmas movie. I think you could. I think it's a Christmas movie. I think you could make the film without it, though. You could have some other... You know, because Alan Rickman, he needed all those people there because he was going to like use them as bait on the roof, right? So, but you could have some other reason for a corporate party and you could have some other reason for Bruce Willis to come and see his ex-wife, right? But I'll say it's a Christmas movie just because it's fun to say it's a Christmas movie because, you know, it, it does take place during Christmas and Christmas is a part of the story. Right. And it's got that great run so, DMC song. But, yeah, it has the, it has the great Hollis. run DMC song, that's for sure. But the final scene in Heat is uh, pretty amazing. I have yet to see any sort of feature ad or behind the scenes on, on how they really did it. Did they control the jets landing or did they just come out and just like do it at LAX and say, hey, LAX, we just want to be at an approach and just we'll like use the airplanes as we can and set up and design our shoot schedule to time it with the planes and do takes that way? Or did they actually wrangle these jets to come and land so that the runway lights came on at the times they needed it to? And I don't know what kind of lighting is in runway lights, but did they have to replace a lot of those lights for the camera? Because a lot of times the lighting is not the right kind of lighting for film. I don't know. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. But either way, in either case, on however they executed it from a production standpoint, it's the cherry on top of an amazing ice cream sundae that you just got done eating. Because the idea of the runway lights creating the shadow that was the lucky break that Al Pacino got to fire first and get the drop on Robert De Niro was just amazing. Because at the end, there's going to be this standoff. They're both equals. Michael Mann has shown us they're both equally awesome at what they do. So who's going to win that? They should both shoot each other, right? Or one of them would have to get lucky somehow. And that's what happened. Al Pacino's character got lucky. The runway lights came on at the right time and he saw De Niro's shadow and turned and fired. And that's the only reason he won, which is just perfect. It's the best way to do it, right? Yeah, the amount of emotional investment I had in that scene is so intense, even after I've already seen this movie. But like Corey said, you like both characters. You've been trained to like both characters. You've shown the inner workings of their life. And not just that they have relationships and they have a life outside of their work, but you've seen like the interworkings of their relationship and you want them both to succeed. You don't want to see either one of them get killed, but I also don't want a cop out and I don't want to see one of them pop out and then the camera goes to black and you hear a gunshot because that shit wouldn't fly. The way that they ironed it out was really good. From what I read, the planes were real the lighting design was done in between planes because the, the way the lights get really bright before a plane lands, 
I guess was totally Michael Mann's idea. That's not something that actually gets done in runways. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, Which I guess is fine. I've traveled enough to know that when we land at night, the lights don't come on on the runway. But yeah, it's dramatic. And it doesn't matter. That yeah. scene is so much like we yeah. didn't deserve that good of a scene. I mean, we didn't need it. It wasn't necessary to you know finish telling this story, but it was such a just fantastic ending. The bro high five. Maybe I could have done without that. I didn't need that at the very end. But it's, it's a hand. It's like a handshake, though. Yeah, They're yeah, not really yeah. high fiving. Yeah, you know? I guess it wasn't a high five. But I hear, but, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. but it was good. It was uh, more of a handshake, you know. Yeah. And a gesture of respect, and so I was fine with it. Yeah. Before I forget, I wanted to make one comment that I've always thought was pretty neat about this movie that I took away from it. Maybe it was the second or third time I saw it. Probably not the first time, but after I'd seen it a couple of times, it dawned on me. I was like, hey, here's a a perfect analogy for this movie is the old Looney Tunes cartoons with the sheepdog and the wolf and how they're like friends before they clock in. Yeah. And then then they both clock in and then they go and then they like battle each other. And then when they clock out, they're like, all right, see you tomorrow, Bob. (laughs) And like the wolf wants to kill the sheep and the sheepdog wants to kill the wolf, right? But then they're friends on the bookends of that. That's what Al, that's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro were the sheepdog and the wolf. Yeah, 100%. Also, Michael Mann is from Chicago, which is fun. But I, re- I read this and this is probably, uh, I just wanted to mention this because he had written the script for Heat while he was filming Thief, which he directed in 1981, which is astounding. So much of the film is based on a real-life confrontation between Chicago cop Chuck Adamson and the actual Neil McCauley. Adamson was a retired police officer who Michael Mann had been working with on and off since the film Thief. They later worked together on two shows produced by Mann, a 1984 Miami Vice and Crime Story. Um, According to Chuck Adamson in the Heat special edition DVD commentary, Crime Stories, Macaulay was a professional bank robber with whom he had frequently crossed paths. Events such as the scene between Vincent and Neil in the coffee shop where they basically tell each other that the next time they meet, they will be their last, and the warehouse sting where Macaulay got tipped off that cops were around due to an officer making a noise actually happened. In real life, Neil Macaulay was killed during a robbery of a grocery store by Adamson's team who were tipped off to the robbery. So that's super interesting to see what Michael Mann thought was like, let's put this exact same thing in and then let's change things around. The end of the bank robbery where Pacino would just refuse to give up and all of the armed thieves had their guns on fully automatic all of the cops had their guns on semi-automatic because that's probably how actual cops have their guns. They need to be careful for citizens and bystanders and just all these things that from anybody who likes to hear stories, anybody who likes to tell stories of any medium, I think this movie is such an incredible exercise in that. Technical reality, like technical accuracy. Right. Yeah, technical accuracy. Yeah. The, the the robbers don't they don't have to care about the background. That's why their weapons are on automatic. The cops do, right? They're responsible to the citizens that are also there. And Al Pacino says it when they're rolling up, right? And they're getting ready to get out of the car. He's like, watch your backgrounds, get clean shots. Yeah. The bank robbers don't have to worry about those things. Yeah, so Macaulay's got that 30 second rule. 
So when Macaulay comes out of the hotel to drive off with Edie, it takes 42 seconds from the time he first sees Lieutenant Hannah to when he turns and runs. It takes Macaulay 12 seconds to assess the situation and then 30 seconds to actually leave Edie behind. Like, who's counting that? That's unbelievable. So, I mean, I could have a lot more to say. Yeah, you can talk about, we could talk about it. We could do a two-part podcast on your show, Jimmy. Yeah. Pete is streaming on Amazon right now. You can get it with a free stars trial subscription, but it's just held up. I guess that that's the last thing that I want to say is how well this movie is held up. You know, this was more than 25 years ago that this movie was made and everything holds up from the storytelling angle to the technical achievements and the acting talent. I don't know if there's maybe Casino, I think is a a rival De Niro performance, but every main actor in this movie, I feel like were born to play this role brought their best to the table and Al Pacino was pretty controlled. I mean, he was known for a long time for doing that like wild, erratic Scarface shit. I guess Hannah, the character originally was written with like a big cocaine addiction side plot that they just dropped, which we didn't really need. But yeah, he just, he was calm and collected when he needed to be. And yeah, I think, I think Al Pacino deserves a lot of credit for this performance. I think it's one of the ones that is an unexpected approach that he normally doesn't take. He's always been accused of, you know, being of like doing some overacting moments and stuff. But you got your head all the way up. Right. But even, (laughs) you know, like that moment and the one where he's like, don't waste my motherfucking time. Right. It's like those, those are perfectly executed. They're not over the top. They're like who this guy is. Right. He's Mm -hmm. just like, he's so dedicated to like getting his job done and catching the bad guy that he just doesn't, nobody gets in his way. He doesn't want anybody to get in his way. And I think those things were all fitting of his character. I think that you're right. I think Robert De Niro's character in this film shows that he's more than just the, you know, Robert De Niro guy, you know, the the characters that he always plays. He really showed depth and the caring for this girl that he ultimately has to walk away from. But like he showed depth in caring for this other person and struggling with, you know, his mantra and his creed of nothing that takes more than 30 seconds. And there really is depth there. Right. And he cared about his, the guys in his crew. You know, and then he even showed compassion at the end, you know, when he walks in on trail, like he wasn't going to kill him. He was going to call him an ambulance, even though he betrayed him. Right. And so there's just, there were a lot of things going on there that like the character that he played in his performance was, you know, a really layered, complex character. And then just all the side characters, like you cared about every single character, even the ones that only had like very minimal screen time. Maybe Hank Azaria's character was the only one that was kind of like, well, he was just kind of a shitbag. Mm-hmm. And like, we didn't get too much into who he was, except that he was kind of just like this low life, like, you know, dude. Right. But you cared about Ashley Judd. You cared about Diane Venora, like just being in this relationship with someone that she totally loved, but just wasn't getting anything from. And then obviously Natalie Portman's character, like she didn't have a ton of screen time either, but you totally saw her arc and cared about what happened to her. And that's pretty awesome in a movie that's got that many characters in it, that none of them were surface. So it's probably could be considered a perfect film for all those reasons. Yeah, I love the subtle way that Ashley Judd's character, when she sees Chris during the sting and goes out to greet him and just gives a really small, subtle hand gesture. 
And he picks it up right away. And that was kind of like her cutting him out, kind of her getting away, because obviously he understood that, okay, the cops are and I have to drive off, whatever. And it's, but it's, it's, it was heartbreaking because like Corey said, you knew this character, you felt for this character. And this was kind of also her character's way of like getting out of this world because it's just how it was written. Yeah. And she knew it was a risk. Because she knew she he was probably going to get stopped and checked. And she was relying on the fact that he probably has a good cover. Because she knew that if she went back in the room and said it's not him, and then they figured out, then she's going away too. So she took a risk for him, for her own self, to get out, right? But she also took a risk. And that was the, sort of their last moment of trust with each other, right? And of course, they have her use her left hand that's got her ring on it. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So we appreciate you coming to our TED Talk. I hope that we've convinced you to rewatch Heat. Corey, do you have anything else you'd like to say that is of priority? I think the movie is um, worth watching, no matter who you are. If you like movies at all and you've never seen Heat, I think you should see it. I also think it was very important to bring up the fact that it was shot 26 years ago. And yes, when you watch it, it still seems like it could have been shot five years ago. Right down to the cars and the houses and the clothes, it somehow not dated yeah the car phones maybe they still just hold up my you know if my son watches it and he just he's like yeah it just seems like they shot it like a couple years ago yeah yeah it's a great movie about broken men and patient women so uh you can get all of our podcasts at soundcloud.com slash movie show theater or itunes or anywhere you get your podcasts so thanks for listening and until next time i'm jimmy i'm Corey gilbert stay movies everyone
my fault.